It is an unmistakable fact that God is our highest authority. I think we all understand that very well. That no one is above him. No one is beside him. He does not share his glory with another. Jesus Christ is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. God is the highest authority. However, if you read your Bible, it is equally unmistakable that God has not only permitted, but established authority on the earth among men. And this has been the constant debate and discussion among peoples throughout history over what is the best way to have this kind of authority. If we're going to have leaders, if we're going to have rulers over us, if we're going to have judges, if we're going to have governors and so on, what's the best way to do that? Now, men like Plato and Voltaire and others, they arrived at an idea that was called enlightened despotism. The idea being the best kind of government would be an absolute dictator who was a good man. An absolutely righteous dictator would be the best form of government. So that way he can do the right thing and nobody can stop him. Now, that's, that's nice to say, but until Jesus Christ returns, that's a rather lofty and a rather impractical dream. And that's one of the things that the American founding fathers understood and is why they decided to put checks and balances in place because they know that that goal is not going to be reached this side of the kingdom. Therefore, in the meantime, how are we to evaluate and establish authorities and rulers in all domains of life? How do we do that? How do we go about doing that? Well, Moses is going to tell us tonight in verse 20 of chapter 16, and it's our title tonight, Justice and Only Justice which is a Hebrew word that expanded out means goodness, righteousness, wisdom, fairness. That's the standard. The forms and the procedures of a government or an institution may vary according to the culture and according to the people who are involved, but the principles outlined in scripture are non-negotiable. And these two and a half chapters are going to give us a rather wide-ranging discussion of the various kinds of authority that God established in the promised land as well as the kind of authority that God approves of in this day and age, and in fact, in every day and age. So let's begin by reading fairly short sections tonight, but there will be a lot of them, starting in verse 18 through verse 20 of chapter 16. Moses is speaking, of course. You shall appoint judges and officers in all your towns that the Lord your God is giving to you, according to your tribes, and they shall judge the people with righteous judgment. You shall not pervert justice. You shall not show partiality, and you shall not accept a bribe, for a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and subverts the cause of the righteous. Justice and only justice you shall follow, that you may live and inherit the land that the Lord your God is giving you. Since Moses was to die, and this is the last will and testament of Moses, the book of Deuteronomy, Israel was going to need a judicial system, which is what Jethro had advised Moses back in Exodus chapter 18, when Moses was the only one in charge, and he spent all day hearing the complaints of these millions of people and acting like Judge Judy or Judge Joe Brown to all of Israel at the same time. And Jethro, his father-in-law, shows up and says, Moses, what are you doing? Well, I hear from God and I tell the people, he goes, bro, you're going to wear yourself out. You need to find other men to help you. And that's what Moses did, starting with Aaron. So this is to continue when they get into the promised land. He says, judges and officers were to be in all your towns. Everywhere there needs to be justice. There needs to be recourse for somebody who has been wronged. If you've watched enough Westerns, you know that if the lawman is not around, things are going to be in big trouble. If you've got to wait for the, for the sheriff to show up or wait for the justice of the peace to come through while you're trying to hold a bad man, it doesn't work out. It might make for good TV, but it doesn't make for a good culture or society. Now, what does this tell us? First of all, very basically, authority in and of itself is not a bad thing. We see the bumper stickers sometimes, question authority. All authority is corrupt. All power is corrupting. We say things like that. They're not Bible verses. Because the Bible tells us that authority is not a bad thing, whether it's in the government or any such thing. In fact, Romans 13, 1, everybody's favorite 4th of July Bible verse, let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. I am not going to get into parsing that passage tonight. We went through Romans not long ago. You can go listen to it there. What matters more to God than the structure or the system, be it a monarchy, 
be it a, a village council or a republic like we have. What matters more than the structure or the system is justice and only justice. In verse 20, that is the same word in Hebrew repeated twice. Tzedek, tzedek. And it means justice. It also means righteousness. Those words are really the same in Hebrew, justice and righteousness. And what do they mean? Well, righteousness at its core, you can hear it in there, means rightness, to do the right thing. Justice is fairness, fundamentally. And we like to take these words and add all kinds of academic speak to them, but we can understand these concepts. They were not to judge people by sight. This guy's ugly and this girl's cute, so I'm going to be nice to her in this case. Or this guy's got money and this guy doesn't, so I'm going to lean towards him. Or I don't like the rich, I prefer the poor people, so I'm going to pick them every time. He says you're not supposed to look at people that way. Never to take a bribe. Never to judge by class or any such thing. Adjusting a system of justice to take in account the flesh is not biblical justice. And this is why various reform efforts, I believe, have been led by Christians. If you look, for example, at the desegregation movement, that was led by reverends and pastors. And why was it so effective? I think because they could stand on the word of God and say, hey, we got two different laws for two different kinds of people. That's not biblical. But when you get to some of the things that you see around the world, what they say is we want to just eliminate uh, justice and fairness as a, as a basic standard and we'll go around and try and put people where they think they ought to be. We will intentionally judge people according to the flesh because we believe we can do it better. But the Lord says just be fair. Be fair. And when you have a judge like that, when you have a, a judge who believes in freedom, when you have a judge who believes in righteousness and justice and fairness, it really matters very little what kind of system you're under, doesn't it? If you've got good people in a bad system, it can still work. You might still want to fix it, but this is what God cares about the most. And you know, in our state, meaning Alabama, we get to vote on our judges. That's the part of the ballot every couple of years you just kind of skip over, da 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 I don't know any of these people. But that's something that we ought to take a little more seriously, isn't it? We ought to care and find out who these people are that are going to be judging us. Is this somebody that is deserving of that title? Or is this somebody that I don't know anything about? And I am as guilty of that as everybody else. So let's remember what the Bible has set up, which is a standard of justice and only justice. Verse 21 down into chapter 7. You shall not plant any tree as an Asherah beside the altar of the Lord your God that you shall make. And you shall not set up a pillar which the Lord your God hates. You shall not sacrifice to the Lord your God an ox or a sheep in which is a blemish, any defect, whatever, for that is an abomination to the Lord your God. Colton asked me tonight, Dad, what's an abomination? I told him something that is not normal and not good and God hates it. If there is found among you within any of your towns that the Lord your God is giving you, a man or woman who does what is evil in the sight of the Lord your God in transgressing his covenant and has gone and served other gods and worshiped them or the sun or the moon or any of the host of heaven, which I have forbidden, and it is told you and you hear of it, then you shall inquire diligently. And if it is true and certain that such an abomination has been done in Israel, then you shall bring out to your gates that man or woman who has done this evil thing. You shall stone that man or woman to death with stones. On the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses, the one who is to die shall be put to death. A person shall not be put to death on the evidence of one witness. The hand of the witnesses shall be first against him to put him to death. And afterward, the hand of all the people. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. Now here, we're getting a, an example, not so much of, a, of an office. We saw that in the last one, judges, right? This is more about judicial procedure. It's giving us a vivid picture of justice in action. And the example of the offense he gives is anybody who is offering sacrifices to another god or goddess. So we talked about last time, Asherah was a goddess worshipped by the Canaanites in a grove. You would plant a tree or you would plant a grove of trees and often you would commit sexual immorality there in honor of the goddess. You shall not set up a pillar. Think Stonehenge here, a standing stone, a memorial in honor of a, of a god of some kind. And the Lord's like, you're not to do that or go after the sun or the moon or any of those things that God made. And if somebody were to be found to have done this, they were first to inquire diligently. We might call that an investigation. Don't just hearsay, 
Well, I heard somebody did that, and now we go after them. God does not permit people to manipulate the system in order to get somebody out of their way, for example. And that has happened across centuries and across nations, unfortunately. And it would only be convicted on the evidence of two or three witnesses. You shall not commit someone to death on the word of one. You had to have multiple witnesses. You had to have good evidence, we might say. And the witnesses had to be the first ones to strike the person with a stone. So, well, that seems like maybe somebody wouldn't want to testify. That's kind of the point. God is like, this is a serious thing. Taking someone to court and putting them to death. He goes, if you're going to stand up and say, yes, this person did the thing that deserved death, you better be ready to put your money where your mouth is and strike the first blow. So in John, when Jesus said, let he who is without sin cast the first stone, he's calling back to this idea here. It's also why Jesus sent out his disciples in pairs out of the mouth of two or three witnesses, you shall believe, right? Most of the Old Testament laws, we looked at this in great detail through Exodus, they existed to slow down the process of punishment. You see this uh, a lot in ancient cultures, unfortunately, that things could be hasty. And even, you know, speaking of the Wild West, right, we're just going to string them up. Who cares if we don't have time for a trial, right? The Lord goes, we're going to slow this down. You're not going to commit revenge. You're going to make sure that it was done. You're going to get two or three witnesses. You're going to bring them before a wise man who's going to make a determination. And the people were involved. You were involved in the justice that took place in your town. Now, we have juries and things like that. But it went so far beyond that in, in the promised land. You're not only the jury, but as you grew older, you probably had the opportunity and the responsibility to become a judge, depending on the size of your village. You were required to testify. Remember we read earlier, I think in Leviticus, that if you knew about a situation and didn't testify, then you could be put to death for that. And you had to be the one to strike the blow. Amos 5.24, a famous verse, let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. God is telling the people, get this right. Take the time to get it right. Don't just rush through it. Get it right. And it's interesting, if you look at our judicial system, that, that personal side of it is, is totally not there, is it? I mean, you have to witness, you have to testify still, but you know, we would never have to be the one to swing the sword, so to speak, or to be the one to tie the noose around somebody's neck if they were to be hanged. We don't even do those punishments any longer. But it's also become very bureaucratized. And I can only speak to this a little because we go into the prison um, once a week and we do ministry over there and it's a, it's a mess. And I don't, you know, there's not really one person to blame for that. It's just that uh, if I get the stat right, it's something like 140% capacity at, I believe, 50 or 60% staff over at the, the prison there. So folks, you know, we need to build more prisons. You've probably seen that on the ballot. To which I go, I don't have a problem with that so much, except you can't even staff the ones you have now. So I don't have a solution to this here. I just know that it's not good. And I've seen uh, how guys are crammed into their, their rooms and things like that. And uh, a big part of the problem is how bureaucratized everything is. There's a thousand forms to fill out. There's a thousand different links in the chain of somebody who can say no or somebody who can say yes. The law is a very complicated legal code. And something will not be resolved quickly in all likelihood. You know, if you'll, you'll be through the appeals process for years Oftentimes, Now, that's slowing it down and getting it right, but a lot of times we're slowing it down and getting it right where somebody who may be innocent is being punished along the way for that. And again, I don't have a lot of specific solutions for you. Do your own homework. But I do think also we have lost sight of the goal that God gave Israel in their judicial system. Why do this? He says it right at the end of verse 7. Purge the evil or the evil one from your midst. Now, we don't even like that category any longer, do we? To call something evil. If somebody says something was evil, that's usually like the most sick, gross crime that nobody could ever possibly justify. That's fair too. But the Lord says there's a whole other string of things that I would call evil. And I think, therefore, we stumble. And I, I, I think you get such a collision of good intentions and corruption and different opinions of how things should be done. I'm open to the idea of reforming the judicial system, but the standard must always be for those two things we've talked about, justice, righteousness, goodness, and also to purge the evil from our midst. That's part of it. And I know that's hard for us to think about. And if somebody were to run on a platform like that, they probably wouldn't get very far. But this is what the word tells us. 
The Lord goes, I want you to make sure that evil does not find a home among you. Take your time, do it right, but when you're sure, remove it. It's hard to draw comparisons sometimes between the way they did things and the way we do because the times are so different, which is why I like to meditate on these principles and say, are we at least doing this or trying to, you know, without casting shame on the people that are actually in it and trying their best to navigate this thing? Just pray. Just pray that the Lord gives us wisdom. Verse 8. If any case arises requiring decision between one kind of homicide and another, remember they had murder and they had manslaughter and very different penalties for those, one kind of legal right and another, one kind of assault and another, any case within your towns that is too difficult for you, then you shall arise and go up to the place that the Lord your God will choose. We talked about that little phrase a lot. This is the place God is going to select where the Ark of the Covenant will sit, which would eventually be Jerusalem. You will go there, verse 9, and you shall come to the Levitical priests and to the judge who is in office in those days, and you shall consult them, and they shall declare to you the decision. Then you shall do according to what they declare to you from that place that the Lord will choose. And you shall be careful to do according to all that they direct you, according to the instructions that they give you, and according to the decision which they pronounce to you, you shall do. You shall not turn aside from the verdict that they declare to you, either to the right hand or to the left. The man who acts presumptuously by not obeying the priest who stands to minister there before the Lord your God or the judge, that man shall die. So you shall purge the evil from Israel. And all the people shall hear and fear and not act presumptuously again. Moses is establishing here a very basic court of appeals. That if your village elders, your village judges could not handle something, they would go to the priests. He also mentions the judge who is in office there. So Moses apparently is anticipating that the line of him being kind of the guy, followed by Joshua, would continue to some degree or another. So in the book of Judges, we're going to see that various people will judge Israel, Samson, Gideon, and so on. And there would be stretches where there wasn't a judge, but every now and then one would come about. But mostly this is about the priesthood. They were the highest court. The men who stood before the Lord, spending their days meditating on the law and dwelling in God's presence, were the best qualified to decide righteously. And God says, if you go to them and you ask them for help, their word is binding. There's nowhere else to go. So if somebody is just trying to get out of the situation because they don't like their hometown judge, maybe everybody knows that you're kind of a liar and a rascal, so they're not falling for you. They want to all go to Jerusalem and I'll talk to them. The Lord goes, once they've decided, you better go with it. It is going to be as if I had spoken. And if you rejected the court's decision presumptuously, whatever it might be, you were to be killed. So if you're going and disputing over a boundary line, for example, and the priests rule against you, but you go home and you move the marker anyway and start treating it like your land, you would be killed for that. Not because moving the marker was a capital crime, but uh, rejecting the decision of the priests was a capital crime. It's a deterrent against presumption that they would have to bow their head and say, yes, sir, if that was the decision that was made. What is presumption? I cannot off the top of my head remember exactly what the situation was, but there was a moment where uh, Justice John Marshall ruled against something that President Jackson had done. And uh, when he was asked about it in the newspapers, Andrew Jackson said, Justice Marshall has made his decision. Now let's see him try and enforce it. Pretty much saying, uh, I'm the president, and I don't think I'm going to listen to you. That's back when it kind of was the Wild West around here, you know. But that's presumptuous, isn't it? And the Lord says, you're not doing that in my, in my land. If a nation cannot expect its judicial decisions to be enforced, then the rule of law starts to shake, doesn't it? I think, and I don't want to be too critical tonight, but I think of all of these ridiculous Senate hearings that we have. What do those ever accomplish you know, it's like, well, they're being brought up before the Senate. And the first time you hear that, you go, oh, that's pretty serious. And after a while, you realize, ah, it's not that serious. Nothing's going to change. Nothing's going to happen. If you can disregard the authority that God has placed up, then the authority begins to fall apart. Now, we do not have a priesthood today. In fact, we have something we believe in called the priesthood of all believers. That, as Peter and Paul have said, and John, that we are all being built up into a priesthood for the Lord. But God has still established authority in the church. And we're speaking about the Levites and the priests here. There is still spiritual authority, and we call them 
pastors, some call them bishops, some call them presbyters or elders. There are various organizational structures, and as, as an association, Calvary Chapel does not really have a strong opinion on what is the wrong and right way to do that. We ourselves have myself as uh, the senior pastor, and we have a board of elders that helps make decisions, and we have a very harmonious leadership here. We don't fight with each other, and we're blessed because that's not always the case. But it is important to note that God does expect the Christian church to respect the authority he has established. If you look through the book of Acts, Paul went throughout not just planting churches, but setting up authority, sending Titus and Timothy out to establish elders in the churches. So those that want to say, we don't need authority, we'll just get together and read the Bible, man. Well, if you read the Bible long enough, you're going to come across the fact that God has given pastors, teachers, evangelists, and so on to lead his church. And it's a shame because today's preachers are treated as disposable. If you don't like one, find another one. If you don't like that one, just move on. And if he starts meddling a little bit, or if he starts going over what you think he should, or if you disagree, just move on and find the next one. Pastors sometimes are treated as entertainers. That This is a great, fun, live podcast I get to go listen to once a week. And if you don't like what they say, well, you don't have to listen to them. And they have no knowledge of your life and no authority there. When in fact, God is going to hold your pastor responsible for your soul. That's me. If you consider this to be your home church, we don't have formal membership. But if you say, this is my church and that's my pastor, God's going to ask me about you. Like when you're being evaluated at the judgment seat, I'm going to be there. So, all right. He's, the Lord's going to look and he's going to see what you did. And he's going to turn to me and he's going to say, all right, Pastor Tyler, what do you have to say for that? And I'm going to have to answer for you. That's, that's totally biblical. That's one of the reasons James says, not many of y'all should be teachers. Because you'll receive a stricter judgment. I'm going to be held responsible for how I've shepherded your soul. And you will be held responsible, not only for your soul, but how you submitted to the authority that the Lord placed over you. Hebrews 13, 17, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. I love that verse. It's so real. He says, don't, when, you, when you show up, don't have your pastor go, oh, not this guy. Oh, not this guy. Because you don't want the Lord on judgment day to say, all right, Tyler, now what do you have to say about him? Well, well, he's here, Lord. And he says, it will be of no advantage to you. Obey your leaders and submit to them. This is why pastor teachers are held to such a high standard. Read 1 Timothy chapter 3. Read Titus chapter 1. And he goes through the list of requirements that must be in place for a leader, a pastor, an elder in the church. I do not mind saying this, although it might be uncomfortable personally, that if I'm your pastor, I'm an authority over you. And this is why if you come and you ask me questions about your life, I will give you an answer. And if I give you God's answer for that situation, you're expected to obey it. Now, we have great relationships here at this church, and I don't walk around like a tyrant, and I never will. But you do need to recognize that there is a spiritual, biblical truth at work there, and that the relationship of a, of a friend is different from that of a husband and a wife, different from that of a father and his son, different from that of a pastor and those that are under the authority of that pastor. The Reformation put an end to a lot of this, and the Reformation did a lot of good in that department. Because there was a while where, I, you know, imagine I'm up, up here saying, I've got salvation, now if you want it, you've got to give me some money. Now that's messed up, isn't it? And I think the Lord was, it seems, was more ready to break that problem than to prevent the issue we have now, which is if churches being so fractured that people can just bounce from one to the other. But you still have the word to obey, both inside the church and outside of it. And I do not mind asking you to hold me to the standard of the word because the minute I start leading off of the, the standard and authority of the word, I'm the one who's in trouble. And that's why I love pastoring here because I know that y'all are with me, that we agree on the things of the word and we agree that Jesus comes first and the lost need to be reached with the gospel. And as long as we maintain that, it's going to be great. And we're going to have a great time at the judgment seat together. Chapter 17, now verse 14. When you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you, and you possess it and dwell in it, and then say, I will set a king over me, like all the nations that are around me, you may indeed set a king over you, whom the Lord your God will choose. So you can make the decision, but God goes, I pick the guy. 
One from among your brothers you shall set as king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. Only he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. Since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away. Nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law approved by the Levitical priests. Meaning they're tracking him and making sure he's doing his homework. And it shall be, verse 19, with him, and he shall read in it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them, that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers. Isn't that a great lesson for anybody that would be in a position of king? And that he may not turn aside from the commandment, either to the right hand or to the left, so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. This is a fascinating passage. And we will return to it in great detail when we get to 1 Samuel chapter 8, which is when Israel decided to establish the king for themselves. But if you read that story, it's pretty clear they messed up and the Lord was not happy with them. What was going on is Samuel was the judge at the time. Samuel had two sons who were rotten, dishonest, disgraceful judges. So in 1 Samuel 8, verse 4, all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old. Let's face it, Samuel. It's time you face the music and your sons do not walk in your ways. That was probably much harder for him to hear, I would expect. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, obey the voice of the people and all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. That's such a good lesson real quick for spiritual leaders to remember when somebody walks away from the Lord or rejects your teaching as a parent or rejects your instruction as a pastor. They're not rejecting you. They're rejecting the Lord if you are walking in the Lord's ways. Now you read that story, 1 Samuel 8, when Saul was anointed king. They clearly were in the wrong. And the Lord destroys a lot of their harvest to give them a sign that he was not pleased about this. And Samuel gives them a long speech of all the ways that their kings are going to oppress them. And they said, we want a king anyway. But it's interesting because you go, okay, why is God so angry if he's already told them through Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 17 that they could indeed do this? And without diving into it too far, the best I can tell is Israel's motivation was a profound lack of faith. They had gone without judges before and been just fine. They were putting trust in the institution of the throne, if we have a king, everything will be good. We won't have any troubles anymore. We won't have this weird back and forth. He'll, he'll lead the way and we won't have to worry about him. They said, we need somebody to, to go before us into war. And they use all this terminology that was used of God in the book of Exodus. And so they were not trying to raise up a king for a good reason. They were trying to raise up a king essentially to say, we'd rather this than the Lord to lead us. So even though they were given permission in Deuteronomy chapter 17, the way they went about it really was not right. And we'll talk about that more when we get to 1 2 Samuel. We who are privileged to vote for our leaders ought to take these instructions pretty seriously. When God's talking about what a king should and shouldn't do, when we every four years, every two years, if you include Congress, get to talk about and decide who's going to lead us, some of that responsibility falls upon us, not just upon the one who's in charge. Well, he's president. Yeah, well, we bear some responsibility there. That's pretty spread out. There's millions of us, right? But I think you get the point. So let's look at some of these instructions. And most of these are specific to the land of Israel, but you can probably extract some lessons from there. First of all, he says he must not be a foreigner. This is because this is God's chosen people. These are the Israelites. God goes, I'm not letting you put no Philistine as king over you. You say, why would they do that? Well, this is what people have done and do in those kinds of geopolitical games. Somebody says, if I can support Rome to come in and overtake Judah, Judah will be fallen, but I'll have a high position in Rome. That's what uh, Herod's father did when he, Antipater was his name, when he brought in uh, the Romans to overthrow the Hasmonean kingdom. 
and so a foreigner. It's a protection against oppression. And even as he talks about going back to Egypt to get horses, right, that dependence on another nation, uh, independence for a nation is a very biblical thing. God goes, you, you as people and you as leaders have a responsibility to make sure that you are not under the thumb of another nation, whether that's economically, whether that is through you know, actual leadership. The Lord says, you lead and protect your people. And the way you protect your people is making sure that if you're the leader, you're the leader. And even if you've got to stand up independently, at least you're standing independently. Second thing, he gives him three things that he must not acquire too much of. First of all is horses. You might go, that's weird. Well, remember, horses at this time are not just, you know, beautiful pets for teenage girls to croon over and braid their manes, right? A horse was essentially like the tank of the day, right? Horses were a mark of military might. Have you ever seen in a movie where there's infantry standing against a charging line of cavalry? I mean, the, the horse was the dominant feature of warfare until World War I. And that's where you see some of the tragic stories, I believe, of Poland that marched into battle with the greatest cavalry in the world and were mowed down by machine guns and tanks and things like that. So he's saying you're not to boast and boost up your military might. It's a temptation to pride. And whether it's horses or anything else, prestige and pride can unfortunately be a motivation for somebody to try and acquire power. And so God is trying to take away that incentive. Haven't you heard it said that all the people that want to be president shouldn't be president. Have you heard that before? Because they just want to have the power for themselves. Well, the Lord is saying people that want to be king because they think they can get hold of a lot of horses. They think they can have a lot of power. They can have a lot of authority. God goes, you're not allowed to have a lot of horses. So if you're the kind of person that is only doing it for the horses, you may go, okay, well, not for me. No, thank you. Number, number two, uh, you're not to acquire many wives for yourself. This is not really cultural for us. We do not have harems, so to speak, any longer. But back, back in the day, in this culture, the number of wives you had testified to how strong and powerful you were. And you would have the queen, right? You'd have your queen who was the one that would have a child to inherit the throne. But then you'd have a lot of other wives that were from military alliances. You'd have a lot of concubines, which were just the pretty ones, but they didn't have the status enough to be considered your wife. And I can see your faces, so you get it. The Lord's like, this is not a good thing. It's a temptation to sexual conquest. He says, I'm removing that temptation too. That if you want to be powerful, you want to be king, you want to be whatever it is, because you think you can get all the ladies, the Lord goes, I don't want that kind of person leading. I don't want that person in charge of my people. So I'm going to remove that as a temptation. And the third one was money. Acquire excessive silver and gold. Temptation to greed. I mean, that's the one we talk about the most, right? Somebody that wants to be in power so they can make money. The Lord goes, well, I'm going to tell you that you're not allowed to have excessive silver and gold if you're going to be king of my promised land. So maybe there'd be one greedy person to say, never mind, I'm moving on. No, thank you. I think these are principles we all can look at. That the, 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 uh, the kind of man or, or woman, as it goes these days, who is just seeking the prestige and is a prideful person and seems to be an accumulator of power for themselves is not going to make a good ruler. Nor is the person that is so sexually crazed that they have that reputation for being a womanizer, a reputation for being a, a dominator in that sense. You don't want that kind of person leading. Or money. A greedy individual should not be leading a country or a city or a state or a household for that matter. And we ought to keep that in mind the next time we go to the polls. And I realize that might limit our options a little bit, which maybe that's something else to think about. But the third thing he requires them to do was to write a copy of the book of the law for themselves. And that is pretty much understood to be Deuteronomy. So not Genesis through Deuteronomy, but Deuteronomy. Write it out by hand under the supervision of the priests. I kind of like that. It's like, you know, they got to check your work and make sure you did it. Every one of us has said, did you do your homework? Yes. Bring it to me. Do I have to? Yes, you do. And you see it, and you're like, yeah, this is, it. This is unreadable. Go change it. So you're going to write it down and keep it for yourself. I mean, books back then, he didn't go to the store and buy a book. He had to write one down. But this would have been personal. It would have been in his own hand. And you know, when you write something down, it's driven into your memory a little bit more. So that he could learn the ways of the Lord, to know the laws himself. Not so much the laws of the land as the laws of God. 
And that's so important. We have many great laws and great rules on the books. And the hard thing is, a lot of times you see somebody abusing their power for one of these reasons, and we say, let's stop it, and you come to find out, well, that's already illegal. They just did it anyway. Because without respect for God's word, all your prohibitions, however good they might be, are going to fail. If the idea of obedience to God doesn't matter to somebody, obedience to men is certainly not going to matter to somebody. I'm the king. I'm the president. I'm a judge. Whatever it might be. I'm powerful. So it doesn't matter what the law says. I'm going to do it myself. So how do we go about this? I'll just give you a piece of advice that I've kind of enjoyed from uh, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who was a preacher in England. I believe he passed away in the late 60s, maybe early 70s. But he said, uh, was interviewed, and you can probably go look this up, and they said, so what, are, what should the evangelical church be doing politically, and what is the best thing that we can do? And that's always the question the world asks us because they don't really care about the rest of it, right? He says, the best thing that an evan- the evangelical church can do is to not give their support away for free. He says, to make somebody that wants to be in power and even doesn't agree with us, make them earn it. Not give anything away saying you can just have this. I think, for example, let me give you an example. It used to be that if you wanted the Christian church to vote for you, you needed to be pro-Israel, you needed to be anti-abortion, you needed to be anti-homosexual agenda, and you needed to believe in religious freedom and all of that. Well, as all of those things have been rolled back, have you noticed that, especially, I'm speaking now mostly of the Republican Party, which is the one that has always gone for the Christian vote for for the most part, They've kind of said, well, you know, the gay marriage thing's been passed, so I guess we're for this now. I had a talk with Catelyn one day. We were just upset. I'm like, excuse me, I'm not going to vote for that. I don't care. Well, you know, the decision has been made. Uh, Not in God's eyes, it hasn't. Don't give your your support away to somebody for free just because they're better than the other guy or whatever calculus you might go through. If, If somebody wants to use the Christian church as a base for their organization, As far as I'm concerned, you better jolly well earn it. Because I would rather just abstain and stay back than put my support in my name, which is also under the authority of Christ, to something that I'm going to regret. So chew chew on that one. Think about it. You know, I know there are differences of opinions on that one, but I think at the very least that can be true. Right? That he's like, well, well, we got them. It's like, no, you don't. No, no, no. We, We are citizens of the kingdom. And that comes first every single time. Can you imagine what would happen? I'm not starting a movement here. I'm just, you know, thinking (laughs) ideas, right? Can you imagine if all the Christians for Democrat or Republican Party immediately said, we will no longer support either of these parties unless there is an explicit rejection of abortion measures, support for Israel, and opposition to the homosexual agenda. Can you imagine what would happen? And then we meant it. And then November rolled around and we didn't vote. Well, then the other guys would win. Yep. They would. And then you'd have a bunch of people somewhere scrambling in a smoke-filled room saying, what do we do? They were with us. We're not with you. You can be with us if you want. Aren't you guys loyal Americans? Now we're loyal citizens of the kingdom first. Just consider that. Just pray about that. And I'm sure we'll all arrive at different points along what should and shouldn't be done there. But be firmly convinced in your own mind and make sure you can stand on the word and say, I'm doing something that I will be willing to look Jesus in the eye and say, I did my best. You can, <laughs> you can take comfort in the fact that God raises up and puts down rulers. And if somebody's in office, it's because the Lord put them there. And that's hard to swallow, isn't it? But you also need to remember that often God will give us exactly what we ask for to teach us a lesson, or to judge us. So remember that. Chapter 18, verses 1 through 8. The Levitical priests, all the tribe of Levi, shall have no portion or inheritance with Israel. They shall eat the Lord's food offerings as their inheritance. They shall have no inheritance among their brothers. The Lord is their inheritance, as he promised them. Where did he promise them that? At Mount Sinai, when they helped put down the orgiastic worship of the golden calf. Verse 3, and this shall be the priest's due from the people, from those offering a sacrifice, whether an ox or a sheep. They shall give to the priest the shoulder and the two cheeks, meaning the haunches, and the stomach. The first fruits of your grain, of your wine, and of your oil, and the first fleece of your sheep you shall give him. 
For the Lord your God has chosen him out of all your tribes to stand and minister in the name of the Lord, him and his sons for all time. And if a Levite comes from any of your towns out of all Israel where he lives, and he may come when he desires, to the place that the Lord will choose, and ministers in the name of the Lord his God, like all his fellow Levites who stand to minister there before the Lord, then he may have equal portions to eat besides what he receives from the sale of his patrimony, meaning his inheritance. So this section, we've been, again, talking about authority. We've talked about judges, talked about kings. We're now talking about the Levites and the priests and how they were to be supported by Israel. The Levites would receive no inheritance in the land. So if you look at a map in the back of your Bible of the 12 tribes of Israel, you're not going to see the land for Levi. They were given specific villages inside the various tribal divisions and the surrounding pasture land. But what we're seeing here is that any time they wanted, according to verse 6, they could leave, come to the sanctuary, and be provided for by the offerings there. This was a protection against poverty, first of all, for the Levites, that if the land just isn't bearing its fruit, uh, they didn't really have the opportunity to spread out and go farther and range and, you know, build a homestead or whatever you want to say. So if they needed to come and be protected from poverty by participating in the, the consumption of the tithes and the offerings... Yes, they could do that. Or perhaps, as we see later in history, in New Testament times, when they would be on shift, the Levites would go in shifts, and the priests would go in shifts to come and serve in the, in the sanctuary. How are they going to be fed? They'd be fed through the tithes and the offerings there. You see this with Zacharias in uh, the book of Luke, that Zacharias, it was his shift to go and burn incense in the, in the temple. So what were they to receive? They'd receive the shoulders, they'd receive the rump meat and the stomach, or we'd, we'd call it the flank these days, of all the animals that were brought in, as well as the tithes of wine and grain and so on. Because what was the Levites' primary job? They were on guard duty. Do you remember this? Their job was to wear a sword and stand there and protect the tabernacle. We saw this back in Exodus, that when the tribes moved out, the Levites would stay there. Their job was to guard the sanctuary, no, make sure nobody got to it. When they organized the camp, the Levites were in that inner ring around the tabernacle. If you do not believe in God, you are going to be stingy with your tithes. If not, it is a joy to you. If you don't believe that the Levites were really called of the Lord or the priests were doing legitimate work, you might see that as a big old scam. Or you might even see it as oppression. They don't even get to have land in this nation. That's not fair. But if you believe that this is real, then man, oh man, it's great. God has provided for his people so that they can full-time serve him. If you believe in the Lord, your tithing is a joy to you. And this continues into the New Testament under the New Dispensation. 1 Timothy 5, 17 through 18. The book of 1 Timothy could be subtitled, How to Run a Church. He says, Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. So Paul is saying that when you, Timothy, are setting up churches and appointing elders, and you appoint teachers, I can testify, teaching the word is a lot of work. There's a lot of study, there's a lot of planning, there's a lot of prayer that goes into it. And so Paul says, in the church, the people that do that, deserve to be supported financially by the church. Because all your, your elders and your leaders should be financially supported. First, though, the ones that teach. And that is the example that we have followed here. The only one right now who is financially supported by the church is myself. And I spend most of my time studying and ministering in the word. Because that's exactly what the Bible says. So there are those, well, I, it's just a big scam to give preachers money. They only work one day a week. Well... If, if they do, they're doing it wrong, I'll tell you that. Just so you know that whenever pastors get together, that's like the first joke that somebody always tells. Well, I thought you only worked one day a week. Ha, 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 and you golf the other four, right? It's like, well, no. Just for, for your own sake and my own accountability's sake, I do my best to work very hard here. Make sure that I'm putting in my hours and that I work longer than I normally would work at another job. And I've had several sit-downs from my, my wife saying, you need to take a break, Tyler. Or she'll say, you need to take a Sabbath, Tyler, which is that now it's spiritual and I have to listen. <laughs> so this, this principle here not only justifies tithing and supporting the work of the ministry financially, it also applies to taxes and all manner of tribute. 
Romans 13, 7 says, render everyone to what, to what they deserve, whether it's honor, whether it's taxes, whether it's tribute. And everybody reading that in that day would have said, tribute? Because <laughs> it was Rome. Rome was exacting tribute from the nations they, they had conquered. And Paul goes, pay it. God put them there. Well, were they equally represented? No, they weren't. But they said, you just trust that God is sovereign enough to know what he's doing. Don't withhold your offerings from the Lord and don't withhold your support from those who serve you spiritually. Most of all, y'all pray for me. Pray for me. I, I need it. I need the support in prayer from you more than anything else. Verse nine is gonna take a little turn here, but it's still gonna be under our umbrella of authority tonight. When you come into the land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not learn to follow the abominable practices of those nations. There shall not be found among you anyone who burns his son or his daughter as an offering, literally to make them pass through the fire. Anyone who practices divination or tells fortunes or interprets omens or a sorcerer or a charmer or a medium or a necromancer or one who inquires of the dead. For whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord. And because of these abominations, the Lord your God is driving them out before you. You shall be blameless before the Lord your God. For these nations which you are about to dispossess, listen to fortune tellers and to diviners. But as for you, the Lord your God has not allowed you to do this. So we're talking about authority, and with the priests, we kind of moved into the realm of spiritual authority. The next section will be about prophets. So here Moses is going to give us a negative example of where we do not look for our authority, and he's going to talk about witchcraft. In case it was not clear, all manner of witchcraft or spiritism or magic is considered an abomination to the Lord. Remember that word abomination, as I told my son, is something that should not be. It's not natural, it's not normal, and God hates it. Because the Lord alone is God, and seeking the help or the intercession of another spirit is the height of blasphemy. And he gives this gruesome list of the kinds of practices they were to avoid. And unfortunately, most of these persist even to this day. And a lot of these things can become very subtle and slip in. And they will have like a, you know, a benign form and a malignant form. And you've got to be careful that you don't allow one to transition into the other. And the first one is child sacrifice. Anyone who burns his son or his daughter as an offering. This is mostly to the god Molech at this time, or Milcom, you might have in an older translation, Molech. They would come and worship this god, and the, the depictions of this god have him standing either with his arms out or within his body. There are many like oven-shaped things, and they would play loud music so that nobody could hear over the noise, and they would bring their little babies and put them on these altars, and they'd be burned up on the altar as they worshipped and engaged in revelry there. It was a way of disposing of your children. But not only that, so this is why many people will connect it to abortion, and I think that it's fair. Finding a legitimate way, not this time through worship, but through science to remove your children that you don't want. But secondarily, this was very often used in witchcraft. For whatever reason, and it's, it's miserable, and it's not, not, it's unsettling reading to get into this, but when I've read stories of men who do ministry, uh, especially among those that have been demon-possessed or have ministries for people coming out of these lifestyles, They'll tell you that there's something about children that obsesses people that are involved in the occult, that the murder of a child or the torture of a child, which is why the Lord tells us in uh, the Gospels, he says, if you're going to mess with one of my kids, you, you better just to tie a big rock around your neck and jump into the ocean before I get a hold of you. So I don't know that anybody here is in danger of that, but anytime you see anything being pushed where people are, it just seems to be abusive or strange towards children. You got to watch out for that. And in case you are not aware of this, there is a, a, an upsurge in what is, people are calling themselves minor attracted people now. If you ever see the acronym MAP anywhere near your children, it's a pedophile. They're trying to get included under the gay rainbow as a special sexuality. It's happening. And I, at this stage of the game, most people are still digging their heels real hard, which is good. But to which I say, you don't get extra credit for that. Because opening, once you open the bottle of sexuality and the only thing that makes a difference is consent, well then what's to stop somebody from arguing for that? 
So I talked about that more than I intended to. But the second thing here was any kind of fortune telling. Divination, it means to divine the truth, right? To divine. It's got the word divine in it, meaning to inquire of a spirit or tells fortunes or interprets omens. Many ways this has been done. Reading the tea leaves is one of them. Uh, examining the entrails of a sacrificial animal. If you've read, you know, the Aeneid, if you've read the Odyssey or the Iliad, you know, they'll see a bird fly by, and that's an omen. That's how we know we're going to win this battle, because that bird chased away this bird. Or people that read palms, or people that do tarot cards, or people that do astrology, trying to tell you what your future is going to be. That's an abomination to the Lord. Fortune-telling. I was very disappointed to read in the official biography of Ronald Reagan uh, that was written a few years ago that Nancy Reagan scheduled all of his appointments after consulting her astrologer. That really broke my heart to read that. But it's the kind of thing that happens behind the scenes in a lot more lives than you think. Fortune telling is a no-go. The third was a sorcerer. Now this is a specific term here referring to somebody that is using demons or spirits to gain some kind of power. And I've explained this to my children that you know, when you talk about magic, this isn't like, you know, Tinkerbell here. We're talking about people that talk to spirits to get them to do things for them. Sorcery. That's what that word means. And there are still those that do that. You know, people that try to invoke various, I, I, there was a band that I wasn't a big fan of, so, you know, at least there was that. But they told, uh, in an interview I saw, they said, well, for the lyrics for this album, we, you know, we liked playing with Ouija boards and we found out that we were always talking to the same spirit. He would always come back and he would give us the same name every time. So he co-wrote the album with us. I was like, nope. <laughs> Not that I'm afraid I'm going to get possessed or anything like that. Because, you know, it's just a little ghost. It is, that's nothing against the Lord Jesus Christ, right? But I don't want anything to do with that. Point being is out there. You will come across these people. Fourth was any kind of charmer. This is somebody that isn't like, you know, doing the... You know, the, the, that kind of thing I just described. But this is any kind of like voodoo sort of thing. Well, the, this is a special potion. You drink it, it'll help you with this. This special incense will bring about this result. Or if you put this hex on this thing, or if you have this little doll and you put pins in it, all of that is a charm, carrying lucky things around. This is an example of a charm. And the Bible says, don't do that. You don't need that. This is why they weren't allowed to tattoo themselves uh, in, their, in their culture, because that was a mark of, well, the, the God is with me now. And the Lord's like, not in my house, it's not. And the fifth, this last set of names here, medium necromancer, one who inquires of the dead. This is any kind of communion with the dead. Now, here's the thing. You can't commune with the dead. So what do you have? You have deceiving, lying spirits convincing somebody that they're speaking to their dead father or dead mother or dead child. And it is an open door to abuse by Satan and his fallen angels. Have you ever seen a psychic out somewhere or a medium that can talk to, uh, talk to the dead for you? You're not really talking to them. And we know this for a fact because if you look, uh, one of the things that King Saul did that was really good was he chased all the witches out of Israel. But on his last night, before he went to a battle where he would die, he went looking for a witch to tell him what was going to happen in the battle. He said, hey, I need to talk to Samuel, who was dead. So that's probably how he justified it to himself. Well, I want to talk to God's prophet, but he's dead, so I'll go to the witch and then talk to him, and I'll kind of cancel out. But it said when this woman saw Samuel rise up, she shrieked and said, you're Saul, you lied to me. Why? Because Samuel really came up. She knew something was different. She goes, oh, it worked. <laughs> so maybe she had some sort of familiar spirit meaning she was in connection with some kind of demon that like they had this partnership to deceive people together so don't be deceived if you are in grief or you're in loss and these things are tempting you y'all come to the Lord and find his grace find a grandpa or a grandma in the faith that can just hug you and love you through it don't, don't try to look to those things they're only going to deceive you and lie to you and it's going to be worse when you're done Pastor Nanda from Nepal, who I'm helping him write his book, and uh, he does a lot of great ministry over in Nepal, and um, he'll, he'll tell you stories, especially when he's growing up, that uh, his grandmother was a witch, well-known witch, or maybe it was his great-aunt, I believe it was, and uh, he's got some horrifying stories from before he knew Jesus, but he'll tell you, oh yeah, once you get saved, ah, that stuff can't hurt you anymore. It's like, praise God, that's my Jesus, right? 
But the Lord is telling them, stay away from that stuff. They remain temptations to us. There are still people that engage in this sort of thing, sometimes secretly. When we first moved down, my wife and I, uh, talking to some friends, they said, we just met some people at Boy Scouts, and they were telling us uh, that the kids went to their house, and they have an altar in their house where they do spells, and they make potions and things like that. And they went to church, believe it or not. So it's out there. It's the only reason I'm, I'm bringing this up. And the reason God says I exterminated these Canaanites was because they were binding themselves to witches and magic and all sorts of things like that. It was an abominable thing. So God goes, that's one of the reasons I'm getting them out of here. So don't you start. Galatians 5, 19 and 20, the works of the flesh are evident. And he gives a long list. But one of the things he says is idolatry and sorcery. Sorcery, that word in the New Testament, anybody know what that word for sorcery is? Pharmakia. That's where we get our word pharmacy. What's he talking about? Drugs. Mind-altering drugs is how the Bible defines sorcery. Now we say, well, we're not trying to, we're not trying to do that. We just want to you know, have a good time. First of all, you've talked to some of these people, and they're not talking about having a good time. They're talking about expanding your mind and meeting your spirit guide, and I'll see things, and I'll, I'll go commune with the aliens. And you go to other parts of the world. You go to India. You go to Nepal or a place like that. They know exactly what they're doing. They're taking the drugs. They're smoking dope. They're, they have the marijuana festival in Kathmandu every year. They say that it draws a bigger crowd than anything. So we have potlucks. They have pot over there. <laughs> it draws a crowd. J just plain old pot. My, my uncle in Tennessee says, I don't like calling them potlucks because I'm a Christian. I don't believe in pot or luck. But, <laughs> but the whole thing is we're going to have communion with the spirit world this way. The way the Native Americans would take peyote or any such thing. It was a way to commune with demons. And if you hear these people that talk about, oh yeah, when I, when I dropped acid, when I took DMT or, or LSD, whatever it is, they all have these experiences where like there were these beings that I saw that were talking to me and speaking things to me. It's like, bro... You don't want to touch that stuff. If you want power, if you want knowledge, if you want an expanded mind, go get it freely from the triune God of the universe. He didn't make you bleed for it. He bled himself so that you could come to him. He doesn't want to possess your spirit. He wants to revive and regenerate your spirit. He wants to teach you these things through the slow process of sanctification so that you have earned this, so to speak, that you've matured along with it. The devil loves to offer us a shortcut to knowledge. That's the first temptation the devil gives, isn't it? Going all the way back to the garden. And these things, witchcraft was a capital crime. Why? Because it enslaves people to the devil and his fallen angels. These things are real, guys. I mean that, that when I say that, the devil is real. Demons are real. These things happen. And the Bible says, I don't want you messing with that stuff. Come to the Lord. If you feel dry spiritually, don't look at the devil's shortcuts. Dive deeper into the spirit. Get into the word which is living and active. Pray, like really pray this time. Fast for a while. Find books written by great men of God that themselves had a profound relationship with the Lord. Serve in the church. Evangelize. Go on a missions trip if you feel dry. Don't be tempted by these other things. There are lots of forms of socially acceptable spiritism. I've already mentioned astrology, right? Which thankfully most of us think that's pretty stupid because it is stupid. The Bible makes an awful lot of fun of that, by the way. Just read Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel. But I mean, every time we do one of the festivals at uh, downtown, there's always somebody out there reading tarot cards or reading palms or a psychic. You, you turn on the radio in the middle of the night, there's somebody saying, hey, call and I'll talk to your dead mother for you. Even I'll say this, and there is a very important difference to be made here, but I do want to make the point. You know, a lot of entertainment involves fantasy of some kind, meaning magic, meaning, you know, things along those lines. I will doggedly stand on the line and saying, you know, watching Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs is not the same thing as engaging in witchcraft. However, there are those who can handle the difference there, Romans 14, that can see that and go, it's not real, it's just a movie. And there are other people that see that and are attracted to it and say, maybe there's something to this. Just as, to use another New Testament example, there are some for whom one drink is enough. 
There are others who just can't have one, but are going to go excessive with it. And this is what we call liberty and conscience according to the New Testament. So even if you have the liberty to watch Lord of the Rings or whatever it might be, probably pretty tame example on purpose there, but, you know, just check yourself every now and then. Am I becoming fascinated by these things, or is it still just a story? Because the minute it changes, you need to take a break. That's all I'll say about that. Verse 15. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me, said Moses, from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen, just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly, when you said, let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God, or see this great fire anymore, lest I die. The Lord said to me, they are right in what they have spoken. This is back in Exodus 19. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers. And I will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. But the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name that I have not commanded him to speak or who speaks in the name of other gods, that same prophet shall die. And if you say in your heart, how may we know the word that the Lord has not spoken? When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the word does not come to pass or come true, that is a word the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You need not be afraid of him. Why would you be afraid? Oh, the Lord shall smite thee for not subscribing to my podcast, thou sinner. <laughs> they're out there. You know they're out there. The final bit of authority we look at here, and I realize time is getting away from us, but is that of a prophet. Specifically, the capital P, prophet, who is to come. Moses said that the last form of authority you'll see is that God is going to raise up prophets. These are men who will speak specifically for God. They're not necessarily giving God's timeless word for all time. They're as much as God's word in the moment of what the people need to hear. Jeremiah 23, uh, the Lord rebukes false prophets and in so doing gives us a definition of a real prophet. He says, I did not send the prophets, yet they ran. I did not speak to them, yet they prophesied. But if they had stood in my counsel, then they would have proclaimed my words to my people, and they would have turned them away from their evil way and from the evil of their deeds. A prophet is one who stands in God's counsel. It's pretty cool, isn't it? God raises up prophets. He always has. And when they speak, it is as the Lord himself is speaking. That doesn't make the prophet infallible. That means inasmuch as they are speaking God's word, that is binding and authoritative. A false prophet, therefore, was to be put to death for daring to fake it. Muhammad, the Bible is filled with prophets. Sometimes you see them in large groups. Elisha had a little seminary of prophets. Sometimes you see outstanding individuals like Elijah or Elisha or Gad or Nathan or the prophetess Huldah, who prophesied to Josiah. And then you had above that a class of what we call writing prophets. These are a very small number of the group of prophets that wrote scripture down. Daniel, Ezekiel, Hosea, Nahum, Malachi, and so on. In the New Testament, we are told that the Holy Spirit would increase the number of prophets. Acts chapter 2. I'll pour out my Holy Spirit on all flesh, and your sons and daughters shall dream dreams and prophesy. And Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 14 that we ought to desire prophecy as a gift. But he also tells us how to properly evaluate it. In the New Testament, because more of us are given us this gift, the New Testament tells us to be humble when we present these things and to have the church, especially the elders, weigh these things to be sure they are of the Lord. 1 John 4, 1 says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, for many false prophets have gone out into the world. In fact, if the Lord says through Moses, if anybody was speaking in the name of another God, not the Lord himself, put them to death. I don't care what they prophesied. I don't care if it came true. Which is why I really am cagey about these guys now that are trying to speak to religion, and they're trying to use the Bible, but they're also trying to use the myths from all around the world. Guys like Joseph Campbell or Carl Jung or Jordan Peterson. It's like... Don't prophesy to me in the name of anything other than Jesus Christ. I don't, I don't care if it's wise. I don't care if it's smart. I don't care if it kind of lines up with this thing. If it's not Jesus, I don't want it. And that is because prophecy found its ultimate completion in Jesus Christ. This prophecy that he gave, I'm going to raise up a prophet. There were a lot of little p prophets building up to the ultimate consummate prophet, Jesus himself. In Christ, God's word was not only spoken, it was made flesh. He was walking and dwelling among us. 
And it's the testimony of Jesus by which we will be judged on that final day. That's the only question. It's a one-question exam to get into heaven. What did you do with my son, Jesus Christ? Well, would you want to see my resume? No, I'm really only interested in that one question. Ever show up to an interview and you've got your resume and they don't really want to look at it? I really want to get to know you a little bit. Only one question. So you've seen in this chapter here, the establishment of authority according to the principle of justice, only justice. And Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of all these things. He is judge. He is priest. He is prophet. He is king. He meets the qualifications of justice and righteousness, not just because he was perfect in and of himself, but because he allowed the justice of God to be perfectly executed on his own shoulders so that he could offer us mercy freely. And someday he will come and establish that enlightened despotism that the rest of the world has been waiting for. And he'll rule the nations with a rod of righteous iron. If you've not submitted yourself to the authority of Jesus Christ, bowed the knee to the conquering Jesus, today's got to be your day because you might not get another chance. And for the rest of us here who are disciples of Jesus, remain submitted to his authority. Don't just name his name. Do what he said, including in the way you treat other authorities and how you pursue your own life as well. Our word for tonight is justice and only justice.